Find your way back to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, let's bow in prayer just one final time and ask the Lord's blessing specifically upon the preaching of His Word. Our God and our Father, I pray that You would come with power this morning. That the power that You have even to raise the dead would be manifested in our midst through the preaching of Your Gospel. I pray that those who have come in this morning dead in trespasses and sins, not relying upon the blood and the righteousness of Christ alone, would be awakened. And that their faith would rest solely upon Jesus and Him crucified. I pray that those who have come in this morning doubting, struggling, straining against the winds and the turbulation, or the turbulence and the tribulation that have come upon them this week, I pray that you would anchor them in the truths of the gospel. I pray for clarity. I pray for boldness. I pray for power. And I pray that you would bind the evil one, keep them away from our midst this morning, that there would be no distraction, that there would be no one to remove the seeds of the gospel from the soil of our hearts. Come with power and glorify yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, things seemed fine when Paul left Galatia and returned back to his home church in Antioch at the end of his first missionary journey. In fact, Luke records in Acts chapter 14 that after they had preached the gospel to that city, which was Derby. And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Pisidian Antioch, all churches of Galatia. Returned back through those churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. There was nothing to indicate that Paul had not left these churches in a solid and stable condition. He'd done everything for them that he could. The gospel had been proclaimed and many had been converted to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Paul even spent time in every church teaching them the word, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to persevere through the inevitable trials and tribulations that would come upon them. He'd even left them under the leadership of a group of godly elders or pastors who were to guide them and to guard them. Pastors, elders whom he had appointed with fasting and with prayer. I mean, Paul must have come back to Antioch with a certain sense of accomplishment. This was a mission trip to be proud of. Larry, if, if you were to come back in a couple of weeks and say, man, we preach the gospel, many were converted, churches were planted, elders were installed, we would say, amen, God has done a great thing in his churches. But all was not well. Within months, Paul received word back in Antioch that the situation in Galatia was dire. We know that after Paul's departure, false teachers had crept into the Galatian churches, retracing Paul's steps, calling into question Paul's apostolic ministry, contradicting Paul's message, corrupting the gospel and confusing the churches. These opponents, these false 
brethren, as Paul calls them, these enemies of the gospel, were teaching these predominantly Gentile congregations that in order to be saved, they needed to be circumcised and they needed to keep the law of Moses. In essence, they were teaching that the righteousness of Jesus Christ was not sufficient to justify them in the sight of a holy God, that the blood of Christ shed on the cross was not sufficient to procure their forgiveness from sin. And to Paul's absolute and utter horror, their heresy was gaining a foothold in these newly formed churches to which Paul had just given birth. So desperate times called for desperate measures. The crisis was urgent and called for an urgent and decisive and critical response. The fate of the Galatian churches was at stake. The eternal destiny of the Galatian Christians hung in the balance. And so therefore, Paul dispensed with the usual pleasantries. Usually, in every other letter Paul wrote, we would be walking through some thanksgivings, some blessings that he would pronounce upon the church. Thanksgiving to God for their service and their faith and their love for the saints. But there are no such courtesies in the letter to the Galatians. Following immediately upon his introduction, which itself was defensive in nature and doctrinal in content, Paul launches immediately into a virulent defense of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at the remainder of Galatians chapter 1 in order to examine Paul's defense of his gospel. And we're going to seek an answer to the question of why the Galatians should believe Paul's gospel, why they should stake their hope and take their stand upon his gospel and no other and why we should as well. That's where we're going. So reason number one, you'll see it there on the back of your bulletin. You can follow along. The first reason Paul gives in defense of his gospel, and the first reason I would submit to you this morning as to why you should believe Paul's gospel, is that it is an exclusive gospel. Simply put, Paul's gospel is the only one there is, and there is no other. It is the only gospel that saves. That's his point in verses 6 through 10. Paul begins this section with an almost violent force. I am amazed, he says, that you have so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. I'm astonished. And furthermore, I'm angry. That you Galatians have been so easily and so quickly bewitched, is the word he's going to use in Galatians 3, bewitched by the heresy of my opponents. And I think Paul intended to startle the Galatians right from the outset by speaking in some of the strongest and most emotional and most intense language found anywhere in Scripture. Verses 6 through 10 are intense. But what I want to do is I want to take all of this intensity of these five verses and just lay it on the table, spread it out as it were, and I, I want to draw from it three truths of which we need to be aware regarding the exclusivity of this gospel that Paul proclaimed, this gospel that we preach, this gospel that we believe. Okay, the first truth is this. There is only one gospel. There are not multiple Gospels. There are not multiple versions 
of the gospel, and this is a very important point. Distorted gospels are different gospels, and different gospels are no gospel at all. There is only one gospel, and hear me this morning, it is narrowly defined. It is a specific gospel. There is no vagueness to it. This is the underlying truth behind Paul's words in verses 6 and 7. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And I want you to remember a a truth that we established, some background that we established last week in the introduction to this series. Paul's opponents in Galatia, those who were retracing his steps and going behind him into the Galatian churches, they believed in Jesus. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he had died upon the cross. They believed that he had been raised from the dead on the third day. They believed that divine grace was essential and that faith was necessary in order for sinners to be saved. They believed all that. They believed in a gospel of grace and faith and Christ. The problem was that they denied that grace was enough, that faith was enough, and that Christ was enough. In addition to the cross of Christ, they added their own works, namely circumcision and obedience to the law. In addition to the righteousness of Christ, they added their own righteousness as the basis of their justification before God. They had a grace plus, faith plus, Jesus plus gospel. And Paul condemned both them and their gospel in no uncertain terms. He calls their gospel a different gospel. And did you you notice? He very quickly clarifies, lest we misunderstand, there actually are no different gospels. Because different gospels are no gospels. There is only one gospel. And everything else is a distortion of that one true gospel of Christ. So that's why I added that second sentence in that first truth that you see in your bulletins. Distorted gospels are different gospels, and different gospels are false gospels. This truth lies underneath all that Paul says in this passage. So let's be clear this morning, okay? Let's be as clear as Paul demands that we be with his words. There is no other gospel save the gospel that he declared that sinners are justified in the sight of a holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Any gospel, so-called, that adds our merit to the free and sovereign grace of God as the basis of our justification. Any so-called gospel that adds our works to faith as the means by which we receive the gift of justification. And any so-called gospel that adds our obedience to the perfect obedience gloriously manifested by Jesus Christ at the cross as the grounds of our justification is a false gospel and ought to be repudiated and named as such. So the question arises, and I think it's fair, are we only talking about a heresy that was lingering around and gaining traction in the Galatian churches somewhere in the middle of the first century A.D.? Is this a 2,000-year-old problem that has very little relevance to us today living in Nixa in the 21st century? Well, the answer is no. Different gospels abound even today. And I want to talk about a few. 
1546, the Roman Catholic Church convened the Council of Trent in order to deal with the growing Protestant Reformation and their fundamental insistence that sinners are saved sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, by faith alone, solus Christus, in Christ alone. The canons of the Council of Trent, which are still considered infallible doctrine of the Catholic Church, include the following. Canon 9 of the Council of Trent. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, that nothing else is required in order to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be accursed. Canon 10. If anyone says that men are righteous without the righteousness of Christ, whereby he merited for us to be justified, we'd agree with that, but then they go further. Or that it is by that righteousness itself that they are formally righteous. Well, that's what Paul says. Let him be accursed. Canon 11. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the righteousness of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be accursed. Canon 12, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be accursed. And in 16th century language, what you did was just hear the Roman Catholic Church in doctrine that it still holds today, deny the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Now, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. I'm not trying to be unnecessarily disparaging to the Catholic Church. I just want you to know that they teach a different gospel. A gospel that adds our merit to the grace of Christ. That adds our righteousness to the righteousness of Christ. That adds our obedience to the obedience of Christ manifested at the cross. And so by my estimation and by the estimation of the Protestant reformers before me, the Catholic Church preaches a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And so I think we ought to just let Paul speak to that in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Well, speaking of angels from heaven bringing us different gospels, let's talk about Mormonism for a second. Mormonism is a pseudo-Christian religion which was born in upstate New York and was founded by Joseph Smith in 1830. Joseph Smith claimed to receive a vision from God at the age of 15 in which he was told that the church had deviated from the gospel and that the true church was going to be restored in these quote-unquote latter days through him. He received another revelation, another vision in 1823 in which an angel from heaven, the angel Moroni, appeared to him and revealed the location of golden plates on which were engraved new doctrine, a new gospel in what is called, what he called, Reformed Egyptian Hieroglyphs, which is a language that doesn't actually exist. Conveniently buried along with these golden plates were a set of silver, you can't make this stuff up, with silver spectacles that had magic lenses that were made of seer stones. 
that enabled Smith to translate divinely inspired hieroglyphs into a language that strangely resembles King James English. Four years later, on September the 26th, I'm sorry, September the 22nd, 1827, the angel Moroni allowed Smith to go retrieve the plates and the spectacles which were buried in his backyard. Soon after the translation, uh, which became known as the Book of Mormon, was published in 1830, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was born. And Mormons will come to your door using language of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. But it does not take long to realize that we're talking about a different God, a different Jesus, and a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. So I say to you, beloved, beware which gospel you receive. There is too much at stake to be wrong. Which brings me to the second truth that Paul points out in this passage. To reject God's gospel is to reject God himself. And to reject God is to place yourself under his curse. Notice carefully Paul's words in verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Did you hear what he said? They're not merely deserting Paul, and they're not merely deserting Paul's gospel. No, he says, by abandoning my gospel, which is the only gospel there is, you are doing nothing less than walking away from God. Some people like to think, and you'll hear this sometimes in the public square, that there are many paths to God, that God sort of sits atop his heavenly mountain, and lots of paths lead up to the mountain, and and you really have your choice as to which one, because they all eventually lead to the same place. But Paul says, you know, that's heresy. There is only one road to God, and all other roads lead somewhere else. And where else do they lead? They lead to hell. Paul is clear in verses 8 and 9 that all who proclaim a different gospel are under God's curse. That's what the word anathema means. Cursed. They are not saved. They are in fact damned. And Paul is clear in the remainder of the letter that he's not just talking about the teachers of false gospels. He's talking about the believers in false gospels. What else could he mean, for instance, in Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4, when he says to the church of Galatia, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to any man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Listen, beloved, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. And we'll break that one apart in about eight weeks. This is is serious business that Paul is dealing with. He is addressing the matter, therefore, quite seriously. So let me tell you, if you walk away from the grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone gospel, which is the only gospel there is, then you have abandoned Christ and you are yet under the curse of God's wrath. So choose wisely which gospel you believe. Finally, verse 10, Paul makes it clear that to believe and proclaim the true gospel will not 
please men, but it will please Jesus. If all that we've said up to this point is true, I just ask you to validate it on the basis of what Paul says, that this gospel is the only true gospel and that all different or distorted gospels are false gospels that lead to the curse and the wrath of God, then we probably shouldn't expect to be very popular in a world that is full of false gospels and is full of false teachers promoting false gospels. This is why Paul says in verse 10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? Listen, if I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So you see what he's doing? He is calling upon the Galatians and the Holy Spirit through him is calling upon us this morning. Make your choice. Who are you going to please? You can either please men or you can please God. You can either serve men or you can serve Christ, but you cannot do both. See, the gospel brings division. It cannot help but do so. This is why just before he sent out his apostles to proclaim the gospel, Jesus warned them, saying, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew 10, 34. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Some of you know that all too real. Gospel causes division. The gospel is a sharp, sharp sword. It's an exclusive gospel which is narrowly defined. And it cuts a division, listen to me, not just between Christian and pagan. And not just between Christian and Muslim. And not just between Christian and Hindu. As we have seen, it cuts a division even among those who call themselves Christians. Paul could not be any clearer. Anyone who calls themselves a Christian yet believes a not gospel is not a Christian. So it's gut check time for First Baptist Church of Nixa. You can't preach a fluffy sermon from Galatians 1. It's gut check time. Are we going to be a man-pleasing church that softens all the sharp edges of the gospel, that dulls the blade of truth so as to avoid cutting anyone to the heart and making them mad? Is that who we're going to be? Listen, nobody gets upset when you wield a toy sword. Nobody gets hurt. When we're playing with plastic. In fact, you can fill stadiums with a message with no sharp edges. But if we bow to the the man-pleasing, inclusive cry of our culture, we cannot and will not please the Lord Jesus. So let's be a church that puts down the toy sword of a vague gospel and picks up the double-edged blade of clear evangelical truth and just wields it throughout our church and throughout Nixon among the nations of the world. Cuba team, take the sharp gospel to Cuba and cut people with it. Second reason Paul gives in defense of his gospel is that it's a divine gospel. It's not man's gospel. God's gospel. 
Look at verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is adamant about two things. Number one, he did not receive his gospel from man. And number two, he received his gospel directly from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. And that's the basis of the confidence that Paul has that he's right and everyone else is wrong. Wouldn't you love to walk in that confidence? You can. His opponents must be wrong because he got his gospel directly from the source, from the crucified and risen Christ, and therefore the gospel that they're preaching, because it's different from what he heard, is wrong. And in the remainder of Galatians chapter 1, Paul is going to defend this claim of divine revelation by recounting his conversion, verses 13 to 16, and then explaining that after his conversion, he didn't consult with anyone about the gospel, except Peter and James, and we'll get to that next week, and that only after having spent a significant period of time preaching the gospel in Arabia before he returned to Damascus. From the the forceful statements that you heard David read earlier, you can read them for yourselves in verses 16 to 21. From those forceful statements, we can safely assume that Paul's opponents were claiming in the churches after he had left that Paul had somehow corrupted the gospel that he had received from the apostles back in Jerusalem. That over time, his message had deviated from the truth. That Jesus had never intended For the church to abandon circumcision in the law of Moses. And in response Paul is adamant that he didn't even go to Jerusalem. Until long after his conversion. And when he did he didn't consult with anyone except Peter and James. No Paul. Paul did not get his gospel from men. Not even from the Jerusalem apostles. He received it direct from heaven. This is not man's gospel. This is Christ's gospel. And if this is Christ's gospel, then we have no right, nor do we dare alter a word of it. Reason number three. Third argument Paul makes in defense of his gospel is that it's a powerful gospel. Powerful enough to save even the chief of sinners himself. Look with me beginning at verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. Being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. This is Paul's story. You have a story? This is Paul's. Paul's story of how he went from being a blasphemer of Christ, 
and a violent persecutor of the church, a man that Luke describes in, in, the, in Acts 8.3 as ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them into prison. A man that Luke describes in Acts 9.1 as breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. A man who was deeply entrenched in the legalism of first century Judaism. Yet a man who was so transformed that he was appointed an apostle of Christ and a herald of the gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law that he once held so dear. What on earth can account for such a change? Nothing. Nothing on earth can account for such a thing. Only a gospel from heaven can do that. A gospel that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. A gospel that is vested with all the power and authority and fire of the Holy Spirit who raises sinners from death to life and brings them into saving faith can account for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Nothing else can account for that. No other gospel has such power. No other gospel can save. So what I want to do in the remainder of our time this morning is I want to present you with two encouragements from Paul's story of grace. I want to encourage you in the gospel. It's been a tough week. It's been a tough week for you. I need good news. Do you need good news? Here's some good news. Two encouragements. Number one, the gospel is powerful to save any sinner, even the worst. Any sinner. Paul makes this point forcefully and beautifully in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 and 16. Just listen to what he says. He says it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of, who, of whom I am the chief or the foremost. Listen to what he says. Yet for this reason... I obtained mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to all who would believe on him for eternal life. Paul's saying God saved the worst sinner in the world, namely me, so that it would be manifested that no one is too far gone, that the patience of Christ is limitless. So if you're a sinner this morning, then take heart. You're just the kind of people that God saves. And no matter what you've done, and no matter where you've been, and no matter how deep or how vile or how filthy or how wretched or how shameful your sin is, God's grace that is found in this one true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is more than sufficient to save even you. And I want you to take that to heart this morning. Because chances are that someone came in this morning thinking, I'm desperate, but I'm too far gone. No one is too far gone to be beyond the reach of God's limitless grace. And his power to save through his gospel. Listen to me. There are no degrees of deadness. Dead is dead. And there is no limit to God's power to save. 
Therefore, it is as easy for God to save the most vile and hardened sinner as it is for him to save a six-year-old child. And conversely, it takes the very same grace of God and the very same atoning blood of Jesus to save the six-year-old child as it does to save the vile and hardened sinner. What every one of us needs this morning is grace, that kind of grace. Grace that is greater than our sin. And that kind of grace is what God has in overflowing abundance for sinners like you and me. So don't fear to come to him. This morning, come freely, come bearing all of your sin and bearing all of your shame and bearing all of your guilt. And please, I beg of you, don't try to clean yourself up first. Because that will only stand in the way of your reception of the free grace of God offered to you in Jesus. And you can't do it anyway. Come. And do not elevate your sin above God's power to save. It is a perverse kind of pride that says, my sin is too great, my past is too shameful for God to save me. So do not dare to doubt the power of God or the extent of His grace. Just simply answer His call and come. By faith, place all of your sin and your shame and your guilt and your filth and your vileness and all of the things of which you dare not speak because you're afraid that nobody would love you. Take all of that and by faith, place it upon Christ at the cross and believe that his blood is sufficient to atone for every one of them. And by faith, take hold of the righteousness of Jesus that he freely offers to you and like a robe, just wrap it around your shame so that you can stand in the presence of a just and holy God, bold and confident in the grace that he has extended towards you in Jesus. And by faith, call upon his name and ask him to save you and ask him to make you new and ask him to take away your shame and your guilt. Ask him and he will answer. Call upon him and he will hear and he will save and do it now. Don't wait for the end of the service. Do it now. Ask him and he'll save. Encouragement number two. I want to encourage you who believe with the thought that all that God did to save Paul, he did for you too. All that God did to save Paul, he has done for every one of you who believe. You have the same story that Paul has. Now, yours is likely not as dramatic. If it is, man, <laughs> let's talk. Yours is likely not as dramatic, but all the essential elements of his story are in your story too. Let me show you what I mean. God, sa God saves every, everyone whom God saves, he saves in the very same way. Same essential elements are there. Let me show you. First, everyone who believes has been set apart before birth. Do you know that? Set apart before birth. Look what he says in verse 15. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, listen to me, beloved, long before you had chose Christ, God had chosen you for Christ. In fact, you were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world, says Paul in Ephesians 1.4. You, beloved, you, believer, are the elect of God chosen by grace before worlds began. 
Everyone who believes has been called by the very same grace that called Paul. Verse 15, but when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Now, I'm betting once again that you did not see the heavens split open and a blinding light flashing all, of, all around you. And you did not hear the voice of the Son of God say, Saul, Saul, Tim, Tim, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? You probably didn't hear that. Again, if you did, let's have lunch. But if you are here this morning and you embrace by faith Jesus Christ as your only Savior and his gospel as your only hope of salvation, then you have been called by the very same gracious God who called the Apostle Paul to salvation. Otherwise, you would still be dead in trespasses and sins, and the gospel would still be veiled to you. It would still be to you utter foolishness or completely irrelevant. Because the only way that sinners are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life and the only way that sinners can understand and believe and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith is through the sovereign and effectual and powerful God of call of God's grace which comes to us through the gospel. You are the called in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, everyone who believes has had Jesus revealed in them. So Paul goes on to say, but when God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Now, again, not directly, as he did with the Apostle Paul, but Jesus was revealed in you or else you wouldn't believe. Maybe it happened in a church on a morning like this morning through the preaching of the gospel. God opened your eyes. Maybe it happened in a car as you were driving down the road on the way to work and you're listening and flipping stations and, and, a, and a gospel-centered broadcast came on and, and God opened your ears. Maybe, maybe it happened as you were alone in a hotel room and you pull open the bedside drawer and there sits a Gideon Bible and you flip open to, to the book of Romans or the gospel of John or Galatians chapter 1 and God opened your mind to understand. I don't care how it happened, but if you believe in Jesus, then God revealed his son in you and the gospel suddenly made sense. You saw your sin you saw the judgment that is to come. You saw your need for Christ. You saw the cross as your only hope of salvation. You saw God's gracious offer of forgiveness and by faith you took it. You saw and you believed because God took the initiative and revealed his son in you. Beloved, your conversion is a work of supernatural proportion. It matters not how or where or when you were converted. It matters not how colorful or how dull your pre-conversion life was because there are no natural conversions. Conversion is a supernatural work of a sovereign and gracious God. Therefore, listen to me, there are no boring testimonies. <laughs> your testimony is not boring. Your testimony is is a testimony to the supernatural work of God in raising a sinner like you from death to life. Everyone who believes can testify to the amazing grace of God. Everyone who believes is saved for a purpose. But when God was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, God saved Paul for a purpose. 
to proclaim the gospel among the nations, among the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And I want you to know, beloved, God has saved you for a purpose. Broadly, it's the same purpose for which he saved Paul. To preach the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus both near and abroad. But I want you to know God has also saved you for a specific purpose. There are no purposeless conversions because there are no ungifted Christians. God has saved you and gifted you specifically to serve his son specifically in the specific context of a local church. What that gift is, I don't know yet. But as your pastor, I'm committed and charged with helping you find out. Helping you plug in to fulfill the purpose for which God called you. Everyone who believes is saved for the glory of God. Look at verse 22. Paul says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul's conversion brought God tremendous glory and so does yours. You were saved to the praise of the glory of God's grace, says Paul in Ephesians 1.6. What do others say about you? He who once was unable to control his temper now has a degree of patience which he never before possessed. He who once cared nothing about Jesus, slept his way through church, never read his Bible, now loves Jesus and loves his church and loves his word. He who once cared only about making more money and building bigger houses and buying better cars now gives graciously and generously and joyfully to the work of the ministry and to the care of the poor. He who once was ensnared in chronic and unrepentant immorality and adultery and pornography now pursues purity with a passion that he never before possessed. And they glorify God because of me. But if no one can notice a powerful change in your life brought about by this powerful gospel, then it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Have you actually been changed by the power of the gospel? Because God's saving grace is a transforming grace. And where there is no transformation, there is no salvation. Oh, that the people of this community would look at you, the members of First Baptist Nixa, and give glory to God because of what they see. No other gospel is powerful to save. No other gospel is powerful to transform. In fact, no other gospel but the exclusive, divine, powerful gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, even exists Paul was writing Galatians in order to call them to take their stand upon this gospel and to be not moved from it. And God is calling us to do the very same. Beloved, take your stand on this gospel and do not be moved. Let's be a church that says 
because we believe from the very core of our being. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. My God and my Father, I thank you for this gospel. And I pray that it would be powerful in our midst this morning. I pray that it would be believed. I pray that it would be understood. I pray that it would be received. And I pray that it would transform everyone. To those who came in this morning unbelieving and unalive, I pray that you would waken them. Awaken them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Reveal Jesus in them. Call them by your grace. And if that's you this morning, beloved, then respond with repentance and faith and call on him right back. Say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I believe that your blood is enough. I believe that your righteousness is sufficient. All of my hope is in you. You pray that and you will be saved. And to the rest of the church, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would enable us to take up the call, to take our stand on this specific, sharp, divisive, exclusive, divine, powerful gospel. And would you enable us and transform us to bring glory to you by wielding it everywhere we go. Make us a gospel people. To bring glory to Jesus Christ, the crucified and the risen Lord. It's in Christ's name that I pray.